Good morning. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. I'm looking forward to digging into that wonderful paragraph of God's Word with us this morning. Do keep your Bibles open there. We're going to work bit by bit through that passage that was just read. And in your outlines, you'll see some space where you might like to take notes as we go. But let me pray that God would speak to us this morning. Father, thank you for your Word that helps us in the realities of life. You don't pull punches, God. You're true with us. You're real with us. You speak of the world as it is, and that helps us to navigate this tricky world that we live in. And so help us this morning. Help us to know our desires, help us to know our hearts, help us to deal with the realities of what's going on for us. And please, by your Spirit, give us, give us a grand vision of the future, something that we can't see on our own, that you need to reveal to us. Thank you that you've told us of it in your Word, and help us, by your Spirit this morning, to feel the glory that is in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So concludes Macbeth at the end of Shakespeare's famous play, Act 5, Scene 5, Macbeth's life has been upended by the pursuit for power and wealth. His king has died, his wife, he's just heard in this scene that his wife has died. And he looks across what life has been and he goes, this is nuts, this is futile, this is meaningless. And it's a powerful statement because I think all of us at some point in life feel like that, don't we? We feel like life signifies nothing, like it's meaningless and vain. It's full of sound and fury... A lot seems to happen, but at times it seems like there's an idiot that's in control. Things don't turn out how they should, how they could, and instead we suffer. Everyone suffers. In different ways, at different times, suffering is an inescapable part of reality. You don't have to think too far just the last couple of months about what we've seen around the world. The White Island eruption, suffering, death, illness. The Australian bushfires we've just been praying for, the the Ukrainian plane that got shot down, 176 dead, just like that. Suffering comes in the form of those big national disasters, natural disasters or accidents caused by humans that say many die in an instant. And then on the more individual level, there's the suffering of sickness, cancer, heart disease, cystic fibrosis, depression, anxiety, the struggles of infertility that Christy just shared with us, that... I could catalogue so many more illnesses. We could be up here for hours thinking through the different kinds of illnesses that plague our world and that would only start to hint at the personal pain that comes alongside that illness. And then there's all the relational suffering as well. Abuse, adultery, divorce, the death of a loved one. This is our world. If you haven't suffered yet, you will. It's one of life's certainties. And it can leave you feeling hopeless. What's the point? Is there a future here? As humanity has experienced this ubiquitous suffering, a number of options have been put forward for how we might deal with our suffering. I think perhaps the most common strategy in our city of Auckland, you can tell me if you think there's a more common one, I think we try to buffer ourselves against suffering by storing up wealth. And let's be honest, money can be helpful in minimising pain. You can surround yourself with comfort, 
with insurance. You can take long, luxurious holidays. You can buy the more expensive medicine and the private health care to try to ease illness when it comes. Money can provide a bit of a buffer around suffering, but the money strategy can't save you from all suffering. You'll still experience pain because life, the world, it's not in your control. I'm sure a number of the people that died on White Island had a bit of money. They could afford a cruise, they could afford the trip out to the island. They couldn't pay the volcano to not erupt. Money does provide a bit of a buffer, but it's not an exhaustive solution. Another option for dealing with suffering is to try not to get too attached to people or things. And this is the Buddhist option. If you don't love someone, if you're not too attached to someone, then when you lose them, when you lose that thing or that person, you won't be as hurt by it. You haven't formed the attachment that leads to pain. Now, it seems to me that this just ends up sucking all emotion out of life. If I'm not attached, then yes, I might feel less pain, but I'll also feel less joy. It sucks the emotion out of life. And although that might help me personally, it doesn't diminish the overall pain and evil that exists in the world. I think the atheist option is pretty similar to this. The atheist just says, yeah, look, life is meaningless. It's just the way it is. We suffer, you just have to deal with it. Just come to terms with the ultimate futility and hopelessness of life. Now, I don't think that's a satisfying option. I can't live that out. It doesn't match up with my human experience and the way that I am as a person. So you can try to avoid suffering with lots of money. You can try to detach yourself so that you don't feel the pain. Or a third option that's pursued by many is to just try to escape the pain with bursts of short-term pleasure. You can pick your poison, is it drugs, alcohol, sex, movies, TV, games, shopping, whatever it is, all of those can be forms of escapism. Life's hard, I'm feeling the pain, I just want to dull that pain, just for this moment, just for this night, I'm going to take something that removes me from my experience of this world, dull the emotions. But that strategy suffers from diminishing returns, doesn't it? The high wears off, you wake up in the morning, and next time you need more to achieve the same emotional escape. So people get addicted to harder drugs, they start binge-watching Netflix every night, they jump from one sexual partner to another, not dealing with the real world, not processing what they're going through. I don't think that's a great strategy either. That's not an exhaustive list of the strategies people have come up with to deal with the suffering in our world, but I think it's a good start. I wonder what your default strategy is for dealing with the futility, the suffering of life. Are you someone that tries to avoid it with the buffer of money? Do you try to be the stoic and just detach yourself from all emotions? Are you someone whose default is to escape into an entertainment or drug-fueled fantasy? We feel Macbeth's line, don't we? Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Everyone suffers. Everybody hurts. But Christians have a unique strategy, a workable and livable strategy for dealing with this strange and painful world. For the Christian, there is no more hopelessness. If you're here today and you don't yet trust Jesus with your life, then I want you to listen along this morning. Hear the Bible's offer for an end to hopelessness. 
to see if you find it rationally and emotionally satisfying. I think it really is. It's true and it's good and you can live it out. And if you are a Christian, then what we're about to see will strengthen you for present suffering and future suffering. If you haven't suffered yet, you're going to. And I want to prepare you this morning for that, so that you don't turn against God in that dark time, but you walk with Him through the shadowy valley of your pain. So let's have a look at Romans 8. I'm going to pick it up at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And what we see here in verse 18 is the Christian hope of glory. If you're taking notes, you might like to put that as a heading. We're going to spend a bit of time here exploring the Christian hope of glory. Because in a world of hopelessness, the Christian has a rock-solid hope, a certain future, a hope of glory. It's a hope for a good future, and compared to this future that lies in store, Paul says the present sufferings of the Christian pale in comparison. Now, Paul, who wrote this, he wasn't kind of sitting in his ivory tower just enjoying a cushy life. Paul was a man that was familiar with suffering. He was treated like a criminal for a number of years. He was whipped, beaten with rods. He spent many nights in a dingy Roman prison. He was shipwrecked for a time and spent a day and a night just in the open ocean trying to survive until he got to shore. At one time, people threw rocks at him to the point that they thought he had died. It looked like the life was out of his body. They dragged him outside of the city and kind of left him there just to rot. That's how bad he was beaten up. Uh, He also had some kind of chronic condition that we read about in one of his other letters. He wished it would go away. He asked God to take it away, but he kind of continued to suffer this thorn in the flesh, some kind of chronic condition. So Paul was a man familiar with suffering, and he looks at his sufferings, he looks at the suffering of the whole world, and he does some maths, kind of puts it into his Excel spreadsheet alongside the future glory. He hits computer and he says, I calculate, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. The future will be so bright that the present will fade. In a way, it's little like a little like our car trip on the way to the summer holidays. Some of you are just back from summer holidays, you've spent that time in the car. I want you to think about the worst possible imaginable car trip that you could have on the way to your holiday. Uh, I think of a family in that setting, you've got the parent trying to drive up the front, kids are going crazy in the back, the car breaks down, you have to pull off the side of the motorway in the stinking heat, try to fix up the car, replace the tyre... Kids are still going crazy. One of them has like eaten too much and they're just throwing up in the car and so the car starts to smell horrible. Another one has wet their pants in the car and so you've got both smells competing. They're fighting with each other. They're going wild. But you've forgotten your CDs and so you're just left with radio and you can't pick up a good station. So you either have silence and the kids or terrible music on the radio. It's an absolutely horrendous drive. Picture that kind of drive on the way to holidays. It's horrendous. It's It's painful. But you get to the holiday destination and it's so glorious. And over the next few days, you relax and you unwind. And before you know it, you're thinking back to the car ride. Like, yeah, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? But isn't this so glorious? Isn't this destination? This is such a good holiday. And now imagine that's a holiday that's never going to end. A holiday where you're in that glorious destination and you've made it through the car ride and you're there and And the suffering just starts to fade into insignificance. 
Now, that might seem like a trivial example because the pain and suffering of this life can be far, far worse than a bad car trip. But at the same time, the hope for the Christian is so much bigger than just a nice holiday. The Christian hope of glory is so magnificent, so glorious, that the sufferings of this world fade into insignificance. They're just not worth comparing. We can endure the difficulty, the pain, because we know what's coming. Now, for those of you who this morning, you're going through the hard suffering, you're in it right now, you're in the deep pits of that pain and uncertainty, this can be hard to imagine, can't it? At the moment, the reality of your pain seems to trump any possible future hope. You're struggling to imagine anything that would be so good that the present suffering will fade in comparison. But let me try. Let me try to lift our eyes to see what Paul saw in this future glory. And I pray that God would illuminate our hearts to see. What is this glory that Paul says is going to be revealed in us? Well, Paul's already introduced that glory, that hope, back in verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. Speaking of the way that Christians are adopted into God's family, he draws out one conclusion of our adoption. He says in verse 17, If we are children, then we're also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And so Paul, speaking of the future, he says that Christians are co-heirs with Christ, that we will be glorified with Christ. The first part of that hope is that we will be with Christ. The lover of our soul, the eternal God who loved us so much that He stepped into the human world uniting human nature to His divine nature, the God who suffered and died for us. The Christ who is gentle and just and true and wise, we will be with Him, finally, face to face. My wife and I were dating long distance. We went through two years of dating while she was in Sydney, I was here in Auckland yeah, we could send messages, we could make phone calls, we could even make video calls and, and see one another. But as the relationship grew and I decided that I wanted to marry her, I, I longed to be with her face to face, to experience the fullness of our relationship with the fullness of our bodies. There's, there's something precious, isn't there, about being in the presence of someone who loves you and whom you love. And there's no one who loves us more than Jesus. There's no one who loves you more than Jesus. I to be with Him finally after years of hearing His Word and praying to Him and experiencing His love through the church. Those are all wonderful things. But to have Christ Himself, to be with Him, that's going to be next level. It's going to be many, many levels more fantastic. And so the Christian hope, first and foremost, is to be with Christ, to be with this One who loves us so much that He gave His life for us with this one who is always truthful with us, who we can trust. It's a wonderful thing to be with Christ. And then the second part of that hope is to be glorified with Christ, to enter into His glory, sharing with Him the inheritance and the rule of a new creation, co-heirs with Christ, glorified with Christ. Now, what is glory? The New Testament uses some different language in connection with glory. It talks about crowns and white robes and thrones, it talks about the splendour of shining like the sun and the stars, because glory has two ideas connected with it. It means fame on the one hand, uh, and it also means brightness. 
glory, fame and brightness. I don't know if glory on those fronts appeals to you or not. Uh, I think the desire for fame can sound a bit wrong for the Christian. Generally in life, to, to want to be famous means that you want to be better than other people. And so the desire for fame can seem like a competitive passion that's more fit for hell than for heaven. And as for brightness, I don't really want to be like a, a bright, shining LED light. Like, what, what is that? But when the Bible talks about being glorified with Christ, it is talking about fame, it's talking about brightness, but the fame that Christians will have is not a fame given to us by our fellow creatures. Now, it's a fame with God. It's the approval, the appreciation of God. It's the moment when God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books and many others as well, he helped me in thinking on this. He wrote an excellent essay called The Weight of Glory. Uh, you can find it online. Uh, it could be a good thing to read this afternoon as you keep meditating on what God is saying to us in Romans 8. I've got a longish quote for you from his essay. It's up on screen. He's read Milton, he's read Aquinas, he's thinking about this idea of glory and fame. Uh, and he tries to wrestle with how this is an appropriate thing for a Christian to long for and want, to receive this approval from God. Let me read it out and we'll see if we can get our heads around it. Lewis says, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I'd mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures. Nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. Now, a little bit complex perhaps, let me see if we can explain that and understand that. What Lewis is observing is that the Christian's desire for God's praise is not conceit, it's not self-admiration, but actually the delight of one who happily recognises that they are inferior. That's the dynamic for the person who takes pleasure in being praised. You think about the person that most delights to hear words of praise. It's not the person who already thinks that they're kind of superior. For that person being praised, it's just like, oh, great, you finally recognise what I've known about myself already. That's nice that you've kind of caught up. That's conceit. That's self-admiration. The person who enjoys being praised is the child who just has a love for their parent and wants to please them and is in that inferior, superior dynamic. They don't want to see that switched around. They don't want to be the parent. They're enjoying being the child. They're delighted to hear that they've pleased their parents. It's the inferior pleasing the superior. And so that, for the Christian, is our hope, our hope of glory. It's the satisfaction of having pleased the God that we were created to please. This promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, any of us who choose, will find approval, will please God. Will please God to, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, like an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. With Christ, we will be glorified. 
Now, that's the fame angle of glory, the appreciation, the approval, the pleasure of God. But the New Testament does also speak of Christians becoming bright and radiant, of shining like the sun. And there's a lot to ponder in that idea, but the aspect that's connected for us in Romans 8 is that this radiance comes for us in a new glorified body. So cast your eyes down in your Bible there, just to verse 23. Notice what Paul says we're eagerly waiting for. He says, We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So a lot of the suffering that we experience in the world is connected to our bodies. They're, they're weak, they're fragile, our bodies decay and they die. But the Christian hopes for a new body, one that no longer decays or dies. In the same way that Jesus rose back to life from the dead, so God will bring our mortal bodies back to life. That's what Paul said in verse 11. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what our new bodies will be like. It tells us that they'll be glorious, powerful and spiritual. It tells us that our current bodies are like seeds compared to the plant that they'll grow into. You look at a seed and then see the plant that it grows into, they're connected, it's the same thing, but you wouldn't ever imagine what the plant would be from the seed that you see. That's what it'll be like for us and our bodies. We're going to get these glorious new resurrected bodies. And that's the Christian hope of glory, to be with Christ in a perfected body, receiving the approval of the Holy Almighty God. Does that excite you? That gets me pretty excited. I'm looking forward to that. And it's not a hope that we kind of cross our fingers for, unsure if it's really coming. It's a hope based uh, on verse 1 we heard two weeks ago. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's based on verse 11 that we heard last week. If God's Spirit is in us, then He will glorify us. The Christian doesn't have a hope based on our performance and having to earn this as kind of something that we merit or a wage that we earn. The Christian hope is purely based on God's promise. He says that He's going to give this to us. He says that He will glorify us. If you trust God, if you trust in Jesus, then for eternity you will be with Christ in a perfected body, bringing pleasure to the holy, almighty God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you have anything like this to help you endure the world's suffering? You can set up some small hopes for some measure of change, but they may or may not happen. And I'm sure you've experienced that in life so far. You thought the suffering would end sooner. You thought it wouldn't be this particular kind of suffering. You had hope that things would be different. You can cross your fingers and hope that things will get better. But ultimately, without God in the picture, the world is the way that Macbeth described it. If you take God out of the picture, the world signifies nothing. But God's brought you here today that you would hear of this amazing hope of glory. He's offering that to you. Turn to God this morning. Enter in through Christ and receive this amazing hope. Trust God's promise. Paul goes on in verse 19, and we see a bit of the working behind his calculation. Uh, I used to get in trouble in high school for not showing the working in my maths classes. I'd just give the right answer, and then they'd take marks off because I didn't have the working. I'm like, but I got it right. Anyway, Paul's going to show us some of the working behind his calculation. Have a look at verse 19. See the reason why the future glory far outweighs the present suffering. See how verse 19 starts with that little word, for? That's showing us that Paul's going to give us some evidence that the reason why to back up verse 18. He shows us in these next few verses 
creation's eager expectation. There's a second heading for you if you're taking notes. Creation's eager expectation. I'm going to read from verse 19 to 22. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. Let's see if we can get our heads around this paragraph. Paul's talking here about the creation, and that is the natural world, including humanity, but with a particular focus here on the non-human world. He's separating out the creation from humanity as a separate bit. So he's talking about the animals, the trees, the elements. And the whole creation, Paul says, is eagerly waiting. And the words that Paul uses for this, it makes you think of someone who's stretching their head up, up on tippy toes, kind of looking out to see. They're they're so keen, they're so eager. The level of anticipation is really high. The whole creation, up on tiptoes, waiting excitedly for God's sons to be revealed. And God's sons, in this context, refers to Christians. Verse 14, we saw last week, all who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. We're adopted by God. But at the moment, that reality is not clear. This reality of Christians as God's sons adopted into His family, that's not evident. We haven't yet entered into the glory of God's family. That glory is in the future for us as Christians, and so the creation is waiting for that day when Christians will be vindicated and glorified. Why are the animals and the trees excited for that? I don't know, if you think about animals and trees getting excited, that's the language that Paul's using. Why would the creation be so excited for Christians to be glorified? Well, verse 20 gives the reason. And again, we've got that little word for. For the creation was subjected to futility. At the moment, the world is futile. It's not just we humans who suffer, but animals and trees. The whole creation is broken. Verse 21, the creation is in bondage to decay. Everything dies eventually. Verse 22, the creation is groaning with labour pains. Vivid image at that point. Some of you have experienced that recently. Some of you have heard those groans recently. This heavy, heavy pain. The creation, all of it is full of suffering. Not just since the Industrial Revolution. I just want to say that sometimes we think that the suffering of creation has just happened since kind of humanity wrecked it there in the Industrial Revolution, but even before then, even before the spike in greenhouse gases, even on a beautiful day in a beautiful forest, there is decay and death. Uh, the Lion King is nice, you know, you hear all the animals singing about the circle of life and Hakuna Matata, just let it be, let's relax. But let me tell you, when the gazelle has been chased down by the lion and is getting eaten, I don't think it's singing at that point. There's decay, there's death, there's suffering. Earthquakes, volcanoes, diseases, floods, these are the marks of a creation that has been subjected to futility. Now, to understand Paul's point, we need to remember back to the first few chapters of the Bible. Why is the world this way? Why is it subjected to futility? When God created everything, He created a good world. And He created us, humans, to rule over the world under His rule. We were given the task to care for the rest of creation, to be managers, stewards, caretakers, to have dominion and rule and bring order to the world. But we started a rebellion against God. We shoved His rule off our shoulders. We wanted to do things our way. 
And that rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. The problem is, without God, we humans are actually pretty hopeless at ruling the world. We can't do it. We can't manage it. And so since the day that we rejected God, the creation has been groaning, in pain, suffering under bad leadership. The ground is cursed, producing thorns and thistles. And God could have ended that pain for the animals and the trees, but He's left it to experience that futility. See what Paul says in verse 20? The creation is not going through this willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. God has left creation in this subjection to futility. In verse 20, Paul says that He did that in hope. In hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. That the fate of creation is tied together with the fate of humanity. God didn't abandon His plan for humans to be the rulers over the creation. He could have just judged and punished us as humans and, and fixed up the world, but He didn't want the world to be fixed apart from a restored humanity. He wanted to restore humanity, He wanted to set that plan in motion through Jesus to restore humans to glory, to, to make us good rulers again, to make us good managers over the earth. So that's what creation is now waiting for. The animals and the trees, they're longing, they're waiting, they're up on tiptoes, eager for Jesus to return, when He and those who trust in Jesus will be good, perfect managers. Now, in case I've lost you in the midst of that logic, let me give you an example of something similar to that. It's a picture up on screen. Does anyone recognise who's in that picture? Yeah, it's a bit cute, isn't it? Does anyone rec- you've got Elmo. Elmo is pretty recognisable. Does anyone know the little green one? Anyone heard this news story? No? All right, that's uh, the newest Sesame Street character. Her name's Carly, and her mum has a grown-up problem. That is, her mum is at rehab. Her mum has gotten addicted to drugs... And in her addiction to drugs, she's not been able to be a good mum anymore to Carly. And Carly's suffering at the hands of her mum's decision to take drugs. Now, Carly hasn't done anything wrong herself. In this kind of context where a child has a parent who's at rehab, the child hasn't done anything wrong in themselves. And yet, because of the parent's decision, because of the parent's addiction to drugs, that There's a brokenness in that relationship and the child is suffering, the child is missing out, they're not getting the good parenting that is beneficial for them, that they long for, that they need. And so a kid whose parent is in rehab is is longing, waiting, eagerly expecting their parent to kick the addiction, to get life sorted back out, to be restored so they'd be a good parent again. Do you get the picture? The kid whose parent is in rehab is eagerly waiting for their parent to be restored. Creation is like Carly, and we are like Carly's mum. We failed creation as humans, we failed it. And we need to be restored, redeemed, and creation is looking forward to that day when it's going to get looked after by good humans again. Does that make sense? And so Paul looks at that dynamic, he sees the suffering of the whole creation, and he thinks, wow, the glory that is in store for Christians is so great that the whole creation is looking forward to it. The future when Jesus returns will be a whole new restored world where lions lie down with lambs and children play with snakes and there's no more death and no more decay. And when we're there in that glory with Christ, in resurrected bodies, with the approval of the Almighty God, wow, 
the sufferings of this present world will be like the faint memories of that horrible car trip fading into insignificance. Christians have a hope of glory and creation's eager expectation is to enter into that glory. And so what do we do in the meantime? While life continues with its pain and suffering, what are we to do? Well, Paul says, verse 23, we groan and we wait. We groan and we wait. Have a look at verse 23. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So, the Christian hope, it's not for a pain-free life here and now. Christians will still suffer in this world as much, if not more, than anyone else. Don't be deceived by the false promises of false teachers that you can have a life now that is free of suffering if you trust in Jesus. That's That's not the Bible's teaching at all. The Bible is clear with us that we will suffer, we will continue in this broken world. Our our hope lies in the future. When Jesus returns, we can't see it now. Instead, we eagerly wait for it with patience, with endurance. We persevere through the pain, knowing that the hope of glory is coming. We do the maths with Paul and, and that helps us to endure the pain. As we long to be with Christ, as we think about the glory that is coming, we can endure we can wait. And as we wait, we groan. It's okay for a Christian to groan. God doesn't call us to be Stoics who have a stiff British upper lip and never like, pretend that nothing ever gets to us, that nothing hurts. We're not called to detach ourselves from our emotions. Christians are not called to never cry. No, no, Christians groan. Christians groan, we feel the suffering, we feel the hurt, and we grieve. We grieve for ourselves and we grieve for others. We we weep with those who weep. In a church of our size, you, you pretty much always know someone who is weeping, always someone that's going through something. We join together within that pain. We cry out to God, how long, O Lord, how much longer until you're going to return and bring us into your glory? We groan, we weep, we cry. And this, I think, offers us a workable, a livable, a hopeful way of navigating our suffering world. As people who have a rock-solid hope of glory, we Christians are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We live this paradox of grieving and yet being joyful. We groan and we wait and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We cry and we weep and at the same time we Thank God that He is with us in our pain. That's the Christian life. No more hopelessness. We have a hope. A hope that helps us to endure. A hope of glory in comparison to which the sufferings of this world fade into insignificance. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Let me pray that God would fix our eyes on that hope. Father, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your grace. We, we don't deserve anything from you. 
but punishment and hell. We are rebels against you. We've shoved your rule off our shoulders. We've committed that treason. We deserve death for rebelling against the life-giving God. And yet you offer us an amazing hope. Through Jesus, through his death on our behalf, our, our punishment has been paid. And through his resurrection to new life, by your spirit within us, we now have that same hope. Hope of a resurrection, hope to be with Christ who loves us so much. Hope to be glorified, to, to have your approval and your pleasure. Hope to be in a restored new world with glorified bodies. Lord, help us to see that, to fix our minds on that, to be with Paul and be able to say that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with that hope and joy. I'll come soon, Lord Jesus. We, we feel the pain of the world right now. With creation we groan and with creation we wait. Come soon, Lord Jesus, and free us from this world of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.